Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 120. And we prepared through 125. They're short ones, but we don't know how far we'll get. We'll go as far as the Lord leads and as far as we have time to go. You might title this 120th Psalm, In the World But Not of the World. The next 15 of these Psalms are called Psalms of Decrees, or Pilgrim Psalms. They're probably sung by the Israelites on the way to Jerusalem to worship. If you'll see Psalm 122, verse 1, it says, it was, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And then their feet were ready to stand, verse 2, and within the gates of Jerusalem. And you might find Exodus 34, verse 24 to connect you with the introduction here as well. But let's notice Psalm 120, verse 1. It says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. You know, trouble drives us to the Lord in prayer. And that's sometimes why trouble comes. We need to pray more. It doesn't mean that uh, that we couldn't pray without the trouble, but it does mean that sometimes trouble causes us to pray. In Psalm 77, verse 2, it says, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. That's a pretty good verse, isn't it? And then in Psalm 50, verse 15, it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. And he says, And thou shalt glorify me. So as in answer to our prayers in times of trouble, God is glorified by answering those prayers. And Psalm 60, verse 11 says, Give us help from trouble. Now listen, for vain is the help of man. Sometimes we come to the place that the only help that we get is from the Lord. Look at the second verse. It says, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. We think of the fiery darts of the wicked that Paul speaks of in Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, the, uh, James speaks of, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth. And you know the fiery darts sometimes come from lying lips, as it says here. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. In verse 3 it says, What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? It's a difficult job to deal with those who are deceitful. With a deceitful tongue and a false tongue. You know, Jesus' example is the best example we can find. Peter says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. What do you do when you're reviled? Most of us want to strike back, don't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. Let me read this for you. It says this. It says, and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. He goes on to say, being defamed, we entreat. We're made of, as the filth of the world and as the offscoring of all things unto this day. And so Paul tells us how to, to deal with those things, doesn't he? And if you and I will recognize that when uh, we are reviled or when there's a deceitful tongue, it says, What shall be given unto thee? Back in our psalm. Hold your place where we're studying always. We'll come back to the verse and go verse by verse. What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Then in verse 4 it says, Sharp arrows of the mighty uh, with coals of juniper. The mighty men. Sharp arrows. And it says, with coals of juniper. You know, there's an awful doom for liars. In Revelation 21 verse 8 it says, And all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I want you to look at uh, verse uh, 5, if you will, please. It says, Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesha, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Now, it says, woe is me. It's a bad place for a quick Christian to have to live. 
You know, Lot lived in a bad place in Sodom, didn't he? And Misha was a son of Japheth, if you look in Genesis 10, verse 2. Now Russia, or Moscow. And in Ezekiel 39, verse 1, it tells us about that. It says, Therefore thou son of man prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Misha and Tubal. And Genesis 10, verse 2 tells us that he was the son of Japheth. And then we find Kedar was the son of Ishmael, Genesis 25, verse 13. And today they're wandering tribes, and it says in Genesis 16, verse 12, whose hand is against every man. So you find two difficult places for one to dwell that's a child of God. Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesha, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. And so we find that these are two difficult places for the Christian to live, maybe symbolically here. If you have Second Peter 2 and verse 8, it says, speaking of Lot dwelling in, in Sodom, it says, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, Lot was a backslidden, we might call him an out-of-the-way Christian, had gone to the wrong place to live, and he had lost a great deal down in, in Sodom. And yet, if... In the midst of all of this, it vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You take a, a child of God that gets in the wrong place and in the wrong crowd, there's nothing more disturbing to him, and he's more unsettled than anything that can happen to him. You get in the wrong place. I've been in the wrong place, and I try to get out of there as quick as I can. If you go into some place you feel like you're, you shouldn't be, well, I'd say just pick up your coat and hat and leave. That's the best uh, advice I can give you right away. Amen. Just get out of there. And you'll know if it's comfortable for a Christian or not. And uh, I titled this uh, 120th Psalm, In the World But Not of the World. So uh, Jesus says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. John 17, verse 16. And the Bible teaches that we are in the world, but not of the world. Okay, let's look at the next verse. In verse 6 it says, My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. You know, Paul tells us, if it be possible, as much as life in you, to live peaceably with all men. And it's not always possible to have peace with everyone. You can make every effort that you can to have peace, and you may not have peace. But peace is the thing that we do need. And sometimes we have those that will just not have peace. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. He says, I am for peace, and the marginal reference says, a man of peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Have you ever had that situation? You're a peaceful man and you want to have peace and the fellow you're speaking to doesn't want to do anything but argue with you or have war. And that's what we have in nations as well as in men. Uh, James says, From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not even from your own lust which war in your members? And so, as long as we have men in this world, we're going to have wars. You can uh, talk about it on an individual basis or enlarge it to get to county, states, uh, government, uh, worldwide, international. And that's where it comes from. And the only cure for it is when, the, when we have the perfect peace, the Prince of Peace comes, then we'll have peace. There's one verse I, I always love, and that is... It seems like it's Psalm 86. Let's turn back to Psalm 86, verse 5, or 85, verse 6. Let's see. And there's a verse that I really uh, do love when it comes to 
to talking about peace. 85 verse 8 it is. It says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. It says, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Look at that. God speaks peace to his people. But then he gives us a warning, let them not turn again to folly. Let's look in our next psalm. It's Psalm 121. Psalm 121. And then we might call this the Lord our helper and keeper. If you want to title it. And he says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. This shows us that we need God's help. And we need the help that comes from where? From on high. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. You know, there are hills, earthly hills that cannot save. But the typical hills, typical of God on high, bring us all kinds of security. Let me read one that shows you that earthly hills. Uh, it's in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. You see, truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. I have a message on uh, this first verse. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And I preached it not too long back. Hills that help. And there are hills that help. And we go back to the hill of, of, uh, of uh, Moriah, Mount Moriah. We go back to the hill of uh, help that, where they held up Moses' hands. Find that that helped fight against the flesh. It's typical of fighting against the flesh. And then we talked about the hill of Calvary is the last one. But there are many of them. And we know the help that comes from Calvary, our salvation and our redemption and our forgiveness and our uh, security, everything comes from that hill that helps. But here he says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. And then he says, my help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. Our helper is the creator of all things. The creator of the universe is our helper. In Jeremiah 32, verse 17, it says this, All Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. So if he's made the heavens and the earth, then when we need help, do we have someone that can help? We have someone that's well able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. In verse... Uh, Three, it says, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. He can keep us in the path of life. You know, David said in the 23rd, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Let me give you several things before we uh, conclude with these other verses of this uh, psalm. First of all, we need God's help. And our helper is the creator of all things. He will not let us stumble or fall. He will not go to sleep on the job. And he protects us day and night. And last of all, when you get to the end of it, he is our keeper. So when we think of God as keeping us in the path of life, we can think in verse 4 also that his care for us is constant and perpetual. Look at this. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. It's constant and perpetual. In verse 5, the Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. 
His care is personal. We don't say the Lord is His keeper or the Lord is the keeper of someone, but the Lord is thy keeper. It's like when the 23rd Psalm, we refer to it again. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, whether he's anyone else's shepherd, and we know he's the shepherd of many, but we need to all, all be able to claim the Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And so, it's a personal thing. And here it says, the Lord is thy keeper. The psalmist makes this personal. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. He is our shade and our shadow. We were singing that song a little bit ago, and it reminded me of uh, Isaiah 32 and verse uh, 2. It says, And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest. As rivers of water in a dry place is the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. That man is uh, verse 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. And that man is Jesus, isn't he? The man shall be as a hiding place. And he's as rivers of water in a dry place. The shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And back in our psalm it says, The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. There are superstitious people that regard the sun and the moon as gods with power to smite with a curse. But, but God says, the Lord, the Lord says, He protects us from all superstitious fears. And the psalmist said, the, Lord, the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Remember, that's what Paul had to say about those on Mars Hill. He says, uh, I, you, you men of Athens, you're all men too superstitious. We got a superstitious world today. I mean, any little old thing that happens, they put a, a sign to it or a meaning to it. Cat running across the road. If he's black, boy, look out. You're in trouble. Never bothered me. What if he's a white one? What if he's red or yellow? Uh, what if you went under the ladder and it, it, you didn't get hurt, but the guy fell off the ladder coming down? That's happened too, hasn't it? People are superstitious about everything. If they see a bird flying, it's a, a black bird, or if they see a different color bird, or someone crashes into your windshield, well, they're just a sure sign that you're going to have a wreck on the next turn of the road. Well, if you'll be careful, you might not. But you know, people get so superstitious that any little old thing that happens, they attach some spiritual meaning to it. And Paul told those on Mars Hill, let me read it for you, in the book of Acts, chapter... 17, let me read verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, gods that you worship, he says, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, to the unknown God. He says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth and dwelt not in temple made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he had need of anything. And he sets them straight on their superstition. He says, Him declare unto you. And then our keeper is a keeper from evil. Look at verse 7 in our text. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Now, from all evil. Our keeper can preserve us from all evil. Remember Jesus said in the model prayer. Deliver us from evil. 
And then look in the, the eighth verse. It says, The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. We're protected under all circumstances. Look, thy going out and thy coming in. We might say young and old. We might say to and from the place of worship. And even forevermore. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other, uh, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's able to protect us, our going out and our coming in. And I'm I'm sure that that would mean in all circumstances of life. When we think of uh, the preacher... And his responsibilities. Sometimes, you know, I've heard preachers say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to resign or I'm going to quit preaching because God didn't uh, bless just like I thought He would. In fact, I used to, I knew a young preacher down in Fort Worth one time. He was ordained over, I believe, in, in the area of Fort Worth. He was a pretty good preacher. He went to Florida. One day he came back to a fellowship meeting we had two or three years later. And he'd only been preaching about three or four years. And he said, he, down in Florida, this morning, that one Sunday morning, he asked the Lord to give him so many people to walk down the aisle. And he says, if God doesn't give me that many, I'll know he's not. I know he's through with me. Well, that's foolish. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard of. You see, God, it's God, it's God, it's in God's timing when someone is to be saved. It's not yours and mine. We preach the word, and Paul told Timothy, he said, preach the word, and he says, be instant in season and out of season. When things are going well, when they're not. When everything is right and when everything seems to be going wrong. You just keep on being faithful and doing. He didn't say give up just because you think some little something's happened. Or move on. I'm always amazed at preachers who want to run from one church to another. They say, well, you know, the Lord must be through me with me here because I've got a lot of problems to face. Paul said, a great, listen, Paul's attitude was, a great and effectual door is open unto me, remember? And he says, and there are what? Everything's smooth. There are many adversaries. Means face up to the problems. And so don't give up just because things start getting a little bit rough. So, the Lord shall keep thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy going out and thy uh, coming in, even uh, from this time forth and even forevermore. So, the next psalm is 122, the house of the Lord. This is the one I really love. Look at this 122. It says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know, it's a very high honor to be invited to a place of worship. David had a definite place in mind located in the city of Jerusalem. Not just anywhere, but in a chosen place. He says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Nowadays we have people that say, just anywhere you want to meet, under any circumstances, is all right. But God has a designated place. In Israel of old, He had a designated place. And in the in this day and hour, and since the days of Jesus, the designated place is the house of God, the church of the living God. Every local, individual New Testament church is His place of worship. If you study the word church in the New Testament, you'll find of all the times that... Uh, over a hundred and something of the times that it speaks about 117... All of them, but about two or three, refer to the local congregation. It says the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, it speaks of the church of Jerusalem. All of these 
statements in the New Testament. So God has a designated place in the house of worship. And it's not just one that uh, comes from uh, without being a scripturally organized and established church either. So we find that they had a definite, uh, David had a definite place in mind and it had a definite location because in verse 2 it says, Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. So he was speaking of the, the location. It says in Psalm 26, verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house. If we had people that loved the habitation of God's house, they'd love the local church today and, and the churches and the pews would be filled. There's a lot of people that love other habitations than the habitation of God's house. And that's why you find that they're here and there on the service nights. You know, I'd hate to go out and start rounding up everyone that professed to be Christians and especially uh, profess to be members of this church and especially profess to be Christians and go get them out of all these various places that they're inhabiting tonight. You might be surprised where some of them are. But it says, Lord, I have loved, Psalm 26, verse 8, the habitation of thy house. You know, I don't believe I could stand it very long if I didn't attend the house of God. How long would you last if you missed the services on a consistent basis? How much hold would the world get on you? What would really happen to you if you didn't get the fellowship of God's people and the instructions from God's Word? How would you feel inwardly? How would you feel as far as the food for your soul is concerned? How would you feel as far as lack of, of fellowship is concerned? There would be a great void inside, wouldn't it? And so you need this... Uh, that we're talking about. Verse 2 says, Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. He wanted to stand in the holy city. And let us take our stand in the congregation of believers. Not just our stand by being there, but our stand on the things that they stand for. First Peter 5.12 says, The true grace of God wherein you stand. The true grace of God wherein you stand. You know, how many people want to stand in the true grace of God? Nowadays, there's a mixture of all kinds of doctrines that are floating around. Someone said, well, you know, we're saved by grace, but we've got to work in order to get to heaven. Or we're saved by grace, but the law, you know, if we don't keep certain commandments, we don't keep any of them telling you the truth. We haven't kept them. And the Bible tells us that Christ kept them for us. And so, you know, you've got all these ideas. Well, I'm saved by grace, but. Where'd you get that but? Who put it in there? Or I'm saved by grace if. We put in all those things. But it's true. Uh, Peter says, the true grace of God wherein you stand. And Paul said, as far as the gospel, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. How do we take our stand as far as the gospel is concerned? Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 13, and having done all to stand. And he says, stand therefore. And he tells us to have our loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and so on. And then in uh, this uh, third verse, it says, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Now, when God's people are assembled together in one place, they're like the city of Jerusalem. Compact together. And the Bible tells us that's exactly what we ought to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now listen. 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye, and he's speaking to the Ephesian church, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Each several building and each particular assembly, and what is true of each is true of this church of Ephesus. Every church is an habitation of God in the Spirit, and it's built together. The foundation of the church is the apostles. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And what is said of, of the church of Ephesus is true of every local church. We're built upon that foundation. You know, some people have made this body. You hear a lot about the body of Christ today. Every local church, the body represents a local congregation. You see? And you hear about the body of Christ everywhere. The body of Christ is not everywhere. The body of Christ is somewhere. And it's a local congregation. And when you start talking about, especially these uh, TV evangelists, they'll say, you know they get these big revivals going, uh, uh, 700 club stuff and all this going on. And they talk about the body of Christ and then they reach out there and they say some of it's over in Europe and some of it's in South America. No, not so. The Lord's not a disjointed body. He's a body. He's the head of the local church. And you and I ought to get that straight in our uh, convictions too, beloved. And so, nowadays people are swallowed up by a lot of other things. But I believe that if you'll study it out, you'll find that that's what it's talking about. is a local body of baptized believers joined together. And when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And when one, one member rejoices, all the members rejoice with it. And if you make it otherwise, when one member suffers over in Europe, you and I don't know a thing in the world about it. But we know the sufferings of our saints here. We know when Troy is suffering or one of the members of the church is suffering, one of them has something that we suffer with it because we can feel it. And we're a part of it. But you wouldn't know that if someone had the same problem uh, over in a foreign country or in South America. Now then, it, you might sympathize with them if you knew about it. You know, you could do that. But the body of Christ is a local body of baptized believers joined together in unity. Okay, let's go on. It says in verse 3, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. In uh, verse 4 it says, Whether the tribes go up, the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. Now a church is made up of saints of various kinds, just as Israel was made up of various tribes. And you read Romans chapter 12 and you'll find the very variation of the uh, gifts of the saints. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, if you will. It starts out, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good, acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, us it says, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. It has to do with preaching. 
And then it says our ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Or he, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. And it means liberal, liberally. And it says he that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. You know, have you ever seen people that would show mercy but they're not happy about it? You know, we, we get in that groove sometimes. If a fellow needs mercy extended to him, it says, listen, with cheerfulness. Do we do it with cheerfulness or do we do it begrudgingly? Here comes a fellow and he needs some help. And maybe we're finally persuaded after we pray about it and say, Lord wants me, wants me to help this person. And you do it. Well, don't do it grudgingly, but do it cheerfully. Be, count it a privilege to do it. Had a young man to come to me yesterday or day before. Got a note. Brought down to the house and a letter, a very nice letter, and said, could you help my son and myself, this lady? And I uh, prayed about it in a little bit. Well, he called and I said, yeah, I got your letter. Come on over. I'll share what I've got with you. Anyway, he said, we'll pay it back. Mama and I will pay it back. And I said, no, you don't need to pay it back. I says, if I can't afford to give any... Oh, you know, I, I won't just lend it to them. If I'm going to help someone, I want to give it to them. If they need help that bad, they need a gift, not a loan. Used to have a fellow tell me, if you can't afford to give it, don't loan it anyway. And so, just give it. And uh, I think that if we can do learn to do those things cheerfully, cheerfully from our heart, and willingly and lovingly, it means a great deal more to them, and it certainly means more to you and I to be able to do it that way. And we ought to check it out in our own feelings. Okay, a church. Look at here. It says uh, in verse 5, For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Thrones of judgment. Israel had judges to correct the wrongdoers and reward those that uh, were deserving. And we should have a discipline order in the church too, to keep order and harmony in the church. The Bible says saints shall judge the world. Can you not judge small matters? Things that pertain to this life. Let me read 1 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians, no it isn't, it's chapter, chapter 6, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verses 1 through 4 is what I want. It says, Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before saints, the saints. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Can't you, don't you have enough wise men among you to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Would you do that? I speak to your shame. You wouldn't get the fellow that didn't have any ability to judge in matters to, to take care of the whole situation, would you? You'd get someone that knows how to handle the matters. You'd seek out the deacons and the men that were trained and the men that were had experience in the matter to make the decision concerning certain things. You wouldn't find someone that had not the knowledge to do that in the church and not the ability to do that. And he says you ought to be able to judge uh, certain matters. And every church should uh, have men and uh, people in that are able to keep order and harmony in the church. And that's what we expect our deacons and our laymen to do is, is to be with us and 
in making the right kind of decisions. When the problem arises, discuss it and, and know how to handle it. All members need to pray for peace in their own church. Look at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Do you pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Do you pray for the peace in your own church? All members need to have peace in their own church. And uh, we need to pray for the peace in the church. Uh, Paul says, keeping the unity of the Spirit. He says, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, notice he didn't say make the unity of the Spirit, but keep it. God makes it. He brings it about. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Look, let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 2. It says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to what? Now look, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, it doesn't say that we're to make the unity of the Spirit because God is, the Holy Spirit does unify. And He's the one that makes the unity, but we're to keep it. And to keep it, we're to have the, the attitude. The feelings, the emotions, the desires uh, that will bring about the keeping of it. And that involves forgiveness on our part. That involves love and fellowship and unity in every sense of the word. If you turn to Psalm 133, just over a page or two, verses 1 through 3, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant... It is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For, I want you to notice the word, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I have underline the word there because it's when these conditions exist that there the blessing is commanded we need to have peace in our own church and we need to have peace because it brings prosperity look how it's connected peace and prosperity go together verse 6 says pray for the peace of Jerusalem they shall prosper that love thee verse 7 says peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces Peace and prosperity go together. Peace and harmony in the church is based on love for the brethren. It tells us to love the brethren. And we'll have peace and harmony in the church. And we'll have prosperity in the church. Look at Ephesians 4 again. Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16. Look what it says here. It says, But speaking the truth in love, that you may grow up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom... The whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in, in the measure of every part, maketh increase, now look, of the body, look at this last statement, unto the edifying of itself in what? In love. You see, the edifying of itself in love. The love in the church edifies itself. And that's what brings about the edification. Paul says, let all the things be done to edification. And so peace and harmony in the church is based on uh, love for the brethren. Those two verses that I just gave you. Look at verse uh, 8 now, if you will. It says, uh, For my brethren 
and companions' sakes, I will now say, peace be within thee. Notice it. again, it's the, the influence of the right kind of a church. And verse 9, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. The influence of the right kind of a church. The Bible tells us that we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The Bible tells us that we're to pray for one another. James 5, verse 7 to 16. The Bible says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We won't have time to go into the next psalm. We'll pick up in the 123rd for our next lesson. But I believe there's a lot of information in that 122nd to show us the, the need for fellowship and unity and harmony in the local church.